I am kind of interested to read this because I haven't read it. <laughs> I just finally finished it the other day in a, a sinus funk, so I don't really know what I've written. And may God bless it. She was a completely trapped, locked in a life of immorality and shame with no apparent way out, no way forward, no way back, living an almost invisible existence until, under God's providence, he crossed several boundaries, both geographical and cultural, established personal contact with her in spite of her desire to be invisible courted her curiosity with imaginative words, touched her deepest pain and need, and brought her into the grace of his reckless and redeeming love. And she amazingly, oh, all so amazingly, then became the first evangelist to the Samaritan people. It is all told rivetingly uh, in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of St. John. You probably know the story as the, the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. I want to draw your attention this morning to a section of the narrative less frequently examined. She, having gone into the town of Sychar, shares her testimony in the town square. She says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Soon, sooner than anyone could have expected, the villagers went out of the town white-robed, winding their way to the well. Jesus, meanwhile, was talking with his disciples. They were freshly back from their grocery run in the town. And he posed before them a question. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Let's pause here over this Jewish proverb that our Lord recites to the disciples. Four, four months, four months, four months till harvest. The Johannine scholar F.D. Bruner notes that this proverb is equivalent to our saying, Rome wasn't built in a day. It essentially means be patient. Don't expect miracles. It takes time for these things to happen. But our Lord isn't buying it. In Christian mission, that doesn't have to be the case. He immediately grabs their attention and ours with three straight visual commands for seeing is believing. Look, he says. Lift up your eyes, he says. See, he says. The fields are white with harvest. In other words, the preaching is now, the sowing is now, and the harvest is now. For the villagers from Sychar, dressed in white and stirred by this woman's witness to the one who has given her new life, are coming out in great droves. They, swept up by the wind of the Spirit that blows where it wills, are even now coming out to see the one who has spoken such life-giving, restoring words to this previously hopeless, helpless creature. Jesus wants his disciples and us to look at the world and see that people are more ready for the gospel than, than they think and, and we may think. You may recall that Jesus gave a similar message before he sent the 12 disciples out with his sermon on the mission. The sermon on the mission in Matthew chapter 10. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. 
And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Well, he saw the crowds filled with people unseen and uncared for by the religious leaders of the day. He had compassion on them. That is, he was stirred deep down inside. He saw them as tormented, exhausted, and led astray. Then there is uh, the parallel message he gave as he appointed and sent out the 72 on mission in the 10th chapter of St. Luke. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Some of these disciples will be received in peace, others with derision, and still others worse with neglect. As Dr. Bruner observes, the world in Jesus' conviction seems to be filled with wolves and sheep, and both the vicious and the victims. We should expect to meet both as we go out our feet shod with the gospel of peace and the word of life on our lips. But make no mistake about it, the harvest today as it was then is plentiful and the time is now. No more saying four more months till harvest. Unseen neighbors and unseen neighborhoods It is true for many of us here in South Carolina that we live increasingly in a world of unseen neighbors and unseen neighborhoods. In fact, so much so that many of us may not realize how plentiful the harvest is. Therefore, we have hosted at this convention several presentations on the art of neighboring by David Runyon. He has challenged us as Christians to begin fulfilling the great commandment by loving our neighbors, our literal neighbors, the people who live around our homes, loving them as ourselves. He and his book, The Art of Neighboring, is at the forefront of a national Christian movement to renew local communities through rank-and-file Christians pursuing meaningful relationships with those who live around them. There is much wisdom in this for us here in the diocese. It's worth noting that this fits into an even broader national movement that columnists like Gabrielle Bascar and David Brooks are writing about almost every other week. Take these opening paragraphs from a recent New York Times piece entitled, A Nation of Weavers. I start with the pain. A couple of times a week, I give a speech somewhere in the country about social isolation and social fragmentation. Very often, a parent comes up to me afterward and says, my daughter took her life when she was 14. Or, my son died of an overdose when he was 20. Their eyes flood with tears. I don't know what to say. I squeeze a shoulder just to try to be present with them. But the crying doesn't stop. As it turns to weeping, they rush out of the auditorium and I am left with my own futility. What can I say to the parents still around who don't yet know that they may soon become those parents? This kind of pain is epidemic in our society. The article goes on to talk about people that the article refers to as weavers who are seeking to build community, weaving their lives into the social fabric of their communities in a multitude of ways. One coaching boxing, another looking out for local kids in the neighborhood, one visiting sick folk in the hospital. Then there's these words from a recent New York Times article by David Brooks. 
What big idea counteracts division, fragmentation, and alienation? It is found in Leviticus and Matthew, he writes. Love your neighbor. Indeed, when the world begins to sing out of our hymnal, pleading for a hospitality which both the Old and New Testaments are filled with, it may be time to hear what the Spirit is saying to us in the church about God's mission in, in and to the world. David Runyon and other pastors in this movement of Christians and churches bridging denominational lines to try to help restore hope to neighborhoods and, and neighbors may be something many of us need to adopt, not just as a workshop, but as a lifestyle. Nevertheless, under the rubric that one size doesn't fit all, we have hosted other missional-focused workshops as well, each seeking to engage with an essential aspect of the church's mission and ministry in the world. So we had the culture and contextualization for mission and church planting. We had a representational confession workshop, a tool for healing wounded communities. We had neighboring, a second mini-workshop with Dave Runyon. We had insight, part two, won't you be my neighbor? We had leading missionally with heart and, and hands. This is truly a remarkable offering of workshops and teachings on mission. Frankly, it's part of a determined strategy for us in the diocesan leadership to change the conversation within the diocese toward becoming a more missional people. I hope it's not gone unnoticed that we have been challenging status quo thinking for the last several years by intentionally focusing on missional themes, convention after convention. Perhaps even a few of you noticed an, another shift. We are no longer referring to these workshops on Friday morning and afternoon as pre-convention workshops. These are the work, the convention. Friday workshops are as much the business of the diocesan convention as today's parliamentary business meeting. It took no resolution or canonical change to make this happen. You don't always have to exhaust yourselves discussing and talking about changes. Sometimes you just need to make them. It will take, however, every priest, deacon, and delegate's buy-in for it to take deep roots in the life of our congregations and dioceses. So long as we just show up for the Eucharist and miss the workshops, we're saying we want business as usual. But it is not a time for business as usual. That business as usual wasn't getting it done then, and it's not getting it done now. So I plead with you. The convention starts Friday with ministry, teachings, doing, and learning about, and sharing ministry and how we get it done. This missional shift in ministry, which seeks to recognize and be more attuned to cultural changes, one of which is the unseen and unknown neighbor, has become something quite real in many parts of the diocese. I've already observed it as a broad social phenomena in our nation, the need for community, the need for relationships. But in other parts of the diocese, we have another development. What I'm referring to in this address is the unseen neighborhoods that are springing up all around the low country. The other day, my wife, just this past week, it might have been Wednesday, came home from, a grocery, from grocery shopping. She seemed rather stunned. She had been to a new grocery store on the corner of Lockwood and Crosstown. I said, is there a grocery store there? <laughs> yes, she said, underneath the new huge apartment complex. She said, I feel like something in New York City. I said, how'd you know about it? She said, we got a coupon in the mail. <laughs> got a discount. I said, gosh, that's one of the things I'm talking about in the bishop's address, unseen neighborhoods. There's one right there on the corner. It used to be the fish market. 
The other day, a fellow Anglican, Mr. Ross Lindsay, dropped by the diocesan office for a brief visit. He had written a book several years ago on church planning as the best way to reach the unchurched. In his book, he referenced how the Southern Baptist Convention in 1998 had been given a large gift specifically for planting of new churches. To make a, a most strategic use of these funds, the Southern Baptist Convention solicited a Washington, D.C. think tank to do a demographic study projecting national growth trends. According to Ross, the study projected that by 2030, 60% of the population of the United States will live east of I-95. 36% of that population will live east of I-95 between Fayetteville, North Carolina, and Savannah, Georgia. Let that sink in for a moment. I'm afraid to say it again. I don't know if it's true, but I think it might be. They said 36% of the population of that growth will live east of I-95 between Fayetteville, North Carolina, and Savannah, Georgia. Did I say Georgia correctly? He also noted that in 2000, the Wall Street Journal reported on a new phenomenon in retirement patterns. The article referred to these new retirees as halfbackers. This term referred to those retirees in the Northwest, the Northeast, excuse me, in the Midwest, who instead of moving all the way down to Florida, were moving halfway back. Rather than retiring all the way to the South Florida, people from the Northeast and Midwest are moving halfway smack dab between Miami and New York is South Carolina. These predictions are now 20 years old. And frankly, I have no idea how accurate these have been thus far. But in case you haven't noticed, the growth in the eastern por portion of South Carolina is already stunning reality. And more growth is coming. The fields are ripe with harvest. It is not four more months to harvest. The harvest is now. Kingdom questions need to be flooding our minds and tugging at our hearts. How many of these recent arrivals will our present congregations in the low country be able to reach? How many of those moving here will be inclined to attend established, even historic congregations? Perhaps those who are already Christians, or maybe have been active in churches before. Those with a heart for history and rich tradition, perhaps. Nevertheless, how many will be more effectively reached through a newly planted church right there in their new neighborhood? How many live in new neighborhoods that we have hardly even seen and know are there. Now, how many of our congregations are vigorously trying to learn where these neighborhoods are and how to reach them? Some of these may not even look like neighborhoods as we've been used to them in the past. We may find our heads swimming like my wife's after her recent shopping trip to a new grocery store underneath a huge new residential complex right there on the corner of Lockwood and Crosstown. People living there. They just go right down the elevator and get their groceries and go right back up. <laughs> There's not even a garage to need to park your car in. Everything's there. But surely there are parishioners in our congregations and involved in real estate and business development that know these places are there. We've got to get in touch with them. We've got to get them on our committees. We've got to get them into the conversation. They're out there selling property in places we don't even know exist. Can they be resources for dreaming and planting? Can we have congregational intercessory prayer groups devoting intensive time, praying for new missional opportunities in these places? If we find out about them, can we get the teams of intercessors praying? What are we waiting for, I ask myself? 
Surely not for the litigation to be over, the property questions resolved. The fields are ripe with harvest today. Unseen neighbors and unseen neighborhoods. Frankly, I feel like I'm back to the future. The Right Reverend Victor Rivera, the bishop who ordained me almost 39 years ago, and then later, one year later, when I was 31, appointed me as chairman of the Diocesan Church Growth Committee. What on earth was he thinking? <laughs> he used to speak of having church growth eyes. Church growth eyes, he said. Except for I can't get his Puerto Rican accent. Eyes like Jesus for the lost. For sheep without shepherds. Lambs without pastures. Wandering far from the fold. I pray that God will give many of us church growth eyes. For Jesus said, look, lift up your eyes. See, the fields are ripe with harvest. And now even more invisible people. And I hope you all up there have that uh, thing almost ready to go. Don't put it up yet. But if you, if you start moving in that direction, that'd be helpful. Not long ago, I met with David Martin, a youth minister at Holy Comforter Sumter. We talked of the need for church planting in the diocese and for many cultural changes in the world around us. He had been listening recently to a podcast of a renowned missiologist in North America who was predicting that the next wave of church planting would be in rural areas. Did you hear that? Rural areas. That was so surprising to him that he got on a demographic website of South Carolina which showed the percentage numbers of nuns, and that's not N-U-N-S, that's N-O-N-E-S, nuns, showing the percentage of nuns county by county. Nuns is a term to describe those people in a community who identify themselves, self-identify themselves as having no religious affiliation. To his surprise and mine, it perfectly illustrated what the missiologist was forecasting. So if you wouldn't mind putting that on the screens overhead, South Carolina by counties. Oh my, you won't be able to see that very well, will you? Oh, what a shame. Boy, are you protected, some of you. <laughs> well, see, what I say is take a moment to locate your county and church on the map. Can any of you do that? Can we just turn off these lights for just a moment up here and see if that'll help? Will that take four hours to do? No, this is high tech here. Can you all see that? Well, I'm going to keep talking anyway, whether you can or not. Take a moment to locate your county and church on the map. The crosses, if you can see them, mark places where we have congregations. You will notice the percentage figure on the county, and the other uh, figure is the number of people in the county. The percentage identifies the percentage of non-religious affiliated persons in your county. Note to self, next year make a copy for them to have in their pack. As to be expected with such a large influx of people moving into Berkeley and Dorchester counties as well as Horry County in the north with Myrtle Beach and Grand Strand, and in Jasper County in Beaufort in the south, we see in these counties high percentages of nuns, such as Jasper County, 65% of the people in Jasper County have no religious affiliation. In Beaufort County, 57% have no religious affiliation. In Horry County, can someone read that? 51%. Fortunately, the Church of the Cross bluffed and launched a multi-campus approach and is looking at planting again in the newly projected communities there in Jasper County. So also is St. Helena's Beaufort looking at planting churches. 
Earlier uh, this uh, morning, we welcomed St. Timothy's Cane Bay as a parish in Berkeley County. Berkeley County, what is it, 60%? Nuns? Means 60%. Almost every, of every three people you come across, two don't have a church in your community. Stunning. So thank God for St. Timothy's, and I guess we've got to get thinking already about St. Titus. They are seeking to reach the unchurched. And as exits on I-26 demonstrate, people are moving by droves. These congregations in Charleston County on the peninsula of Charleston don't get too comfortable with your 39% nuns, because this is a few years old. And probably today it's more like 45%, if not 50. This Pew Research, a few years old, doesn't account for the local growth in the Holy City. In last year's bishop address, I remarked how St. John's Island, uh, John's Island had doubled in population in the last 10 years. Glory be to God, Father Greg Snyder and the vestry and lay leaders of St. John's were not without an answer to this huge gospel opportunity. Just this past spring, they took a great step of faith. They called Mr. Will Clover, now a newly approved candidate for holy orders, to lead this church plant. Then this last Wednesday, St. Aidan's of the Sea Islands opened a checking account for this new church plant. St. John's, would you stand? God bless you for such a great act of faith. Up the coast to the north, Christ the King, Grace Waccamaw on Parley's Island, the most Anglicanized spit of sand in the world. <laughs> Under the rectorship of Tim Surratt has taken another step, and they are planning to build a facility in order to enable greater growth and ministry. Please stand, would you? Christ the King, Grace. Walk them off. God bless you in your work. And even further north, Grace Anglican North Myrtle Beach with Cindy Larson as the new priest in charge found a new location for their congregation in a place called Little River. Some of you don't even know there is a place called Little River out there uh, to the west, northwest of Myr North Myrtle Beach, but they found a new location I just was there last Sunday to confirm and receive new members and give them a, a, a taste of Bishop's flu. But anyway, <laughs> would you all stand, you at Grace uh, North Myrtle Beach. God bless you for your work. Yet as we noted, Horry County is filled with the unchurched, the nuns. No religious affiliation. Now, here's where it gets intriguing. Turn your eyes to the harvest on our more rural counties. If you live in Marlboro County and attend St. Paul's Bennettsville, every, of every three people you come across in your day, whether at work, shopping, or attending community events, two of them do not have any committed religious affiliation. Does that not stagger you? Marlborough County, 66% nuns? It gets no better next door in Chesterfield County. For the members of St. David Shiraz, statistically every other person you meet in Chesterfield County throughout your day has no religious affiliation. Go a little further south, to Darlington County. And if you are a member of St. Matthew's Darlington or St. Bart's Hartsville, every other person you come across in your daily life, excuse me, two out of three people you come across. What, it goes so counter to me as I've been meeting with vestries up there and they've said, 
for years, and I believed them, that everyone they knew was churched. Well, I believe everyone they knew was churched. But my goodness, two-thirds of the people they don't know aren't. It just boggles my mind. The Bible Belt is no longer belted by the Bible. So it's all rather staggering to begin to look at some of this. We could adjourn the convention right now and print copies of this for every priest and delegate to ponder these percentages and our time would not be wasted. We've got to look and see, open our eyes. What will it take to reach these unchurched neighbors in more rural small towns or even mid-sized communities? Can our present congregations change enough to accommodate their needs? Do they need to? Does it mean having multiple services even in a small town congregation that will appeal to people with different needs and from different backgrounds? If so, how does our already stressed congregation and rector carry out or launch such a venture when they already feel pressed? Will we lose what we have if we do? Will the priest and vestry that steps out in faith be accused of neglecting or caring for the longtime members? Change can be difficult when it appears to challenge the habits of a lifetime. One definition of leadership I've heard is that leadership is disappointing your own people at a rate they can't absorb. <laughs> but even this disappointment is only possible from a foundation of deep trust between congregation and their pastor. And that trust takes time to establish. And yet the harvest is now. We have much to pray over as we seek God's equipping for our clergy and laity for these challenges and the rich opportunities before us. So I turn to jars without lids and life beyond the invisible fence. Years ago, as a young priest and chairman of the Church Growth Committee in the Diocese of San Joaquin, I attended a church growth conference in Pasadena. I'm talking 30, 40 years ago. One of the speakers used an illustration that stuck with me all these years, and I have on occasion shared it with clergy and vestries. You see, if you put fleas in a mason jar, they'll jump out different direction. But if you put the mason jar lid on it, the little fleas will jump, and they'll put their heads against the top of that mason jar but even a flea brain comes to the conclusion that is not a preferable existence. <laughs> and it hurts to hit the top of the lid. So they begin jumping that high. Now here's the interesting study. You take the lid off and they still jump that high. Then you take them out of the jar and they still jump that high. They just jump that high for the rest of their lives. And beyond that, you know the next generation of fleas that they produce will jump that high. Well, the illustration wasn't lost on me. It wasn't lost on me because I was the vicar of a small rural congregation and I'd been busting my head against the lid of a small jar. And I was in the lid and hitting my head, and I determined that I would not believe what was possible was dictated by the lid and the jar that I was stuck in. Note to self, I am not suggesting that the success of one's ministry is determined by the size of the jar or the height of the jar lid, but rather by the quality of the ministry one is exercising in the kingdom of God. But I could look around me at 31 years of age and I could see clergy that were jumping that high. And they'd been jumping that high for a long time because they had lost their conviction that the gospel of Jesus Christ has power to change lives. 
And they were just jumping that high no matter where they went. I looked at all of you clergy coming forward last night. And I thought, we have a great group of clergy here. Uh, would you all stand, clergy, priests, and deacons? Don't, don't sit down. Don't sit down. Across the board, I believe this or I wouldn't say it. I think this is the finest group of clergy, Anglican clergy in North America, right here. I pray for each of you and your spouses by name every week. So if you are in the uh, uh, Beaufort Deanery and Georgetown Deanery, your day is Monday. <laughs> West Charleston is Tuesday. Wednesday is Charleston and, and uh, Orangeburg. And Thursday is Florence and anyone left outside. Lord, send your anointing upon these, our clergy here in the Diocese of South Carolina. Anoint, bless, and renew them in the gospel. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. And would you now sit down, unless you're Rick Belzer. Is Rick Belzer here? Rick Belzer, celebrating 50 years in the priesthood this summer. God bless you, Rick. A mentor to many here. If, if Rick Belzer had, has influenced your life in a significant way, clergy or laity, please stand. But you know, a further challenge uh, that a priest may have is how to help the congregation that has just gotten by in survival mode for a decade or three to believe that there can be more than what they've experienced and to look for the kingdom possibilities that are there for them and to see their community with church growth eyes and a kingdom heart. Just this past January, I read a book by Michael Hyatt entitled Your Best Year Ever. Parts of it reminded me of, of this illustration. And in chapter 2, Hyatt shares a story about how several years ago he and his wife, J Gail, had an English setter named Nelson. And Nelson was a perfect pet for the family. He was warm and gentle, lovable, and great with the grandchildren. He just had one fault, that whenever they opened the front door, he'd dart out like a prison escapee from a high-security prison, dashing out the front door and across the street, barely uh, dodging uh, the oncoming traffic and out into the neighborhood and take 20 minutes to get Nelson back under wraps. They didn't know what to do. They just didn't know what to do until they discovered invisible fence. <laughs> Hyatt said it was the breakthrough they needed. Invisible works by pairing an underground parameter wire to an electric uh, dog collar so that whenever Nelson would approach the boundary established by the underground wire, it would send a warning vibration through the collar. And so with some additional training, Nelson quickly learned where the boundary line was and avoided it. No more bolting out the front door. They could actually leave him out there in the front yard and go off for the day, and, and uh, Nelson would just stay right there. No fear of him running away. And then they made an interesting observation. They could stand on the far side of the parameter 
and coax Nelson to come, and he wouldn't. He wouldn't go past the barrier. The grandchildren could stand out there with dog biscuits, and he wouldn't go across the barrier. Somehow or another, the external barrier had moved from the external world into the internal world of Nelson's brain. Hyatt summarizes, our beliefs play a major part in how we approach life. We all too often experience what we expect, and what we expect often determines what we experience. Well, I read that and I was back in the flea in the jar. I immediately saw the application of Hyatt's illustration to three arenas of my life and ministry. First, of course, was my own life. What invisible fences had I made an unhealthy peace with and allowed to become part of the internal life of my mind, determining therein what I believed was possible? The next place I began to apply it was to the diocese. How had this ongoing litigation placed us behind an invisible fence, and how had we as a diocese allowed this long process of waiting to move from an external barrier of the slow grinding legal process to become a barrier within our minds creating or at least contributing to a visionless, faithless method of operating. From there it was rather obvious for a third application. Our congregations and clergy had the ongoing legal process and the resulting litigation fatigue as well as the uncertainty of who might eventually own the property just become a convenient excuse for doing nothing but the status quo and internally reciting a proverb, four more months till harvest and we get the judge's ruling? Had it become for us an invisible fence, taking a wait-and-see attitude towards everything we're about in mission? Just maybe God has taken us into this uncharted territory to transform us, to unleash us from our previous idols, comforts, and securities. As Todd Bolsinger notes, in a changing world, the leader must continually be committed to ongoing personal change to develop new capacities to be continually transformed in ways that will enable the organization's larger transformation. In a world of unseen neighbors and unseen neighborhoods, do we have to wait to know who owns the church building or begin to begin a missional thrust of loving our neighbors as ourselves? Do the neighbors care if we own our buildings, if they don't know Jesus? Can we not begin earnestly Praying for the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. A plea for a call for the intercessors. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. Intercessors. Many of our congregations have intercessory prayer groups. It is often a ministry made up of women. However, however it need not be so. Some of the most inter important intercessors in my life over the years have been men. Whether the intercessors are men or women, I want to celebrate them for a moment. It is a great task, a great work. Some of you have heard me tell this story. It was probably my third or fourth confirmation service. I was at Christ St. Paul's on Young's Island. The confirmands had already come forward and been confirmed. I had told Father Chris Barrett, Craig Barrett, who, by the way, is sick with the flu today, I told him, look, let's do the confirmands first and then we'll do those that we receive because they just stand. The confirmands kneel. So the first for reception was coming forward. 
as she was coming forward, I heard the Lord speak to me. He said, pray for her to have the gift of intercession. I thought, Lord, that doesn't fit in with the liturgy. (laughs) She came forward. I took her hands and I prayed. We recognize you as a member of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church and we receive you into the fellowship of this communion. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, bless, preserve, and keep you. And then a moment. And I cast caution to the wind. I put my hands on her shoulder. And I said, I pray that God will grant you the gift of intercession. That by your prayers you may bring down strongholds, uplift the weary, win the seeker, guide the lost, comfort the afflicted, heal the sick, Set free those in bondage. Protect the strong by the prayers you pray on bended knee. By the time I'd finished the prayer, tears were streaming down her cheeks. The rector's mouth was open ajar. If he'd had false teeth, they would have fallen out. (laughs) Afterwards, he said, Did you talk to her before the service? said, no. She was in my office on Tuesday of this week. Tears in her eyes saying, I've been reading about this gift, this ministry of intercession. I want the gift. How do I get it? God knew how she got it. He declares it, and it's true. It's there. This isn't just a ministry that only little old ladies have around a cup of tea. You are entering into the battlefield of the Lord. And some of those little old ladies can do it well. But some of them need to be protected and, pro- and, and taught what this is. It is a mighty battle. And men and women both need to be about it. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. It's a mighty task. I like to compare it this way. It is the Air Force in a battle. It's the RAF during World War II over London. Those uh, pilots fighting, bringing down German bombers and protecting the people in London from the nightmare of the Blitzkrieg. But here's the thing. So often if you look at the list of people on the intercessors prayer list in our congregations, it's mostly the sick and the dying on there. It's like the Air Force flying all their forces over the mass unit when what they need to be doing is flying over those who are taking the territory of the enemy. Because if they don't fly over and protecting, covering over those who are moving forward in the battle, the ones in the front of the battle will be in the mass unit before long. So here's what I suggest to the intercessors of the diocese. We are going to get together a list of all the clergy and their families. Actually, I already have them, but I don't have all the children. Each of the deans will have them get a list. Each clergy I'm asking to write one sentence, not too long, of what you want prayed for in the next three months. We will put together an intercessory connection of those intercessors across the diocese, and they will each week pray for the clergy and the churches of this diocese that we may move forward because the Lord told us to do it. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. We know it's there. It's just sometimes we're behind this invisible fence or in that mason jar and we are worn down and weary. But when the Spirit of the Lord comes and equips and enables you, we will go forward. As one soldier under Napoleon said, after he gave his speech, even a corpse would have gone into battle. 
So after the intercessors begin to pray and anoint the clergy of the diocese and protect their family as they step forward, we will expect God to do a mighty work in this diocese because the harvest is, is plentiful. And Lord, raise up intercessors who know what they're about and what they're doing because the battle is fierce and the warfare long. But the Spirit of the Lord is able. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Finally, giving the last word to a church planter in the field at harvest time. I just got this the other day. Bishop. Please bring us home with a reminder that what we are called to do and be is nothing new and nothing to be scared of. Jesus is already where he is calling us to go. He is the seed that you mentioned in your previous address last year. He has been scattered. He has seen the unseen. He cares for the hopeless, the harassed, and the helpless. All we have to do is what the Spirit of God enables us to do, point to Him. There He is in the supermarket parking lot, changing a tire or jumping a car. There He is paying for the coffee shop latte for a stranger. There He is learning the name of the barista and checkout persons. There He is dropping off a meal at the neighbor in Nexton who doesn't attend a church. There he is asking to pray or drive someone to the doctor's appointment who doesn't attend a church. There he is throwing newspaper on the neighbor's porches and pre-dawn walks with his dog. There he is rolling trash cans back up the driveways of people he has never met. Let's hope he doesn't get shot. There he is <laughs> praying for the safety of, of his, from the safety of his living room for the neighbor's kids playing or biking, riding their bikes. There he is. There he is, there he is, in our neighborhoods, towns, and cities, and the rural fields of South Carolina. He is in each of us that have repented and called on his name. There he is. Let's go join him. God bless you, Gary Beeson, for writing my conclusion. <laughs> there he is, let's go.